Uh, as Tim mentioned just now, we're beginning a new series on uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians. Uh, and if you look in chapter 1, verse 1, we see that this is a letter uh, to the church at Thessalonica, the church of the Thessalonians, and it's from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Uh, it's from a tree of them, but actually the Apostle Paul is the main authority behind this letter. Uh, in fact, he signs it off himself. Uh, if you go to chapter 3, verse 17, you see he's, uh, he's signing it off, right? So uh, when I talk about the letter today, I'll just say Paul for short, but you understand Silvanus, uh, also known as Silas. Right, so, uh, and Timothy are in the background there somewhere as well. Uh, and of course, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who has moved Paul to write this. Uh, and it's his word just as much as it's Paul's word. Uh, Thessalonica is one of the cities in the area of Macedonia. Coming on the screen, you'll see a, a map. Uh, and you can see where Thessalonica is uh, up there. Uh, the top of Greece up in Macedonia there. Uh, Paul and Silas visited Thessalonica in about 49 or 50 uh, AD in what we call his second missionary journey. Right? If you go to Acts 17, you can read about it. Uh, it says that they reasoned in the synagogue there for about three Sabbath days. So they're probably only in that place about three or four weeks. Uh, and then the Jews of the city formed a mob. They started a riot. They dragged some of them and the local converts before the city officials. Uh, local Christians posted bond. They smuggled them away. Uh, and first they went to Berea. Uh, you see Berea on the left of Thessalonica. And then Paul goes down to Athens uh, and Timothy meets him later. And then from Athens, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check up on the church uh, in case they, they've fallen away under persecution. And then he went on to Corinth. Uh, you see Corinth down the bottom there. Uh, and then Silas and Timothy joined him. And Timothy brought good news about the Thessalon Thessalonians. Uh, they were persevering in their faith, but they had some issues to work out. And so in response to that good news, he wrote 1 Thessalonians, uh, uh, probably AD 50 or 51. Uh, and then he stayed in Corinth about three and a half years um, after that. And probably sometime in that time, he wrote this second letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, maybe the person who delivered the first letter came back with more news, uh, so he wrote the second letter, lah. but uh, uh, we don't know exactly what prompted it. Uh, and from the letter, uh, we see Paul is really thankful for the way they're growing. He's concerned about three big things, uh, persecution they're facing, uh, false teaching they're still getting about the return of Christ, uh, and the fact that some people are still being idle. And we're going to look at those three things uh, in the sermons over the next few weeks. Uh, but today we're looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So let me pray, uh, and then we'll get into chapter 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you have given us uh, this letter um, uh, from the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians, uh, inspired by your Holy Spirit. Uh, and we pray that your Spirit, who worked uh, through Paul to give us these words, uh, would be at work among us now. May he strengthen and empower me to, to preach this word in his, in his strength. Uh, and may he work in each of our hearts. May he open our eyes to Jesus. Uh, may he lead us uh, to Christ-likeness uh, and to perseverance uh, in following him. Uh, and may he encourage us and help us to be an encouragement to others as well. And so we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know that you want to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ, don't you? Right? That's a big part of why we meet, to encourage each other. But how do we do that? How do you help spur each other on uh, to love and good works? Well, in 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, today's passage, it is actually a word of encouragement to a church that is undergoing persecution. Uh, and Paul encourages the Thessalonians here in, in four ways. 
Uh, he thanks God for them, uh, and he, he tells them why. Uh, he speaks about them to other people, and then he tells them what he spoke about them. He reminds them of the second coming of Jesus, and to help them press on, got a goal to work towards, and he tells them that he's praying for them in light uh, of that coming. Right, and we're going to look at those four things. Uh, and as we see what Paul does, we will see how we can encourage each other. At the same time, we do so realizing that we're not quite like Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. The people whose position we are most like in this letter is the Thessalonian church. Uh, and so, as we read this chapter, we will see how this Thessalonian church is like a, a model for our church. We will learn about growing in faith and love and about being steadfast in persecution. And we will see things that we can pray for each other and for ourselves. And we will hear words of encouragement as well as words of warning uh, about the second coming of Jesus. It's going to be relevant no matter who we are. So, how does Paul go about encouraging this church? First of all, Paul thanks God for their growth in faith and love, and he tells them about it. Have a look at verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Uh, back in 1 Thessalonians, uh, we saw that Paul loved the Thessalonians like a father. He really cared about them. Now, even back there, he thanked God for their faith and hope and love. And he prayed for them earnestly, day and night, uh, that he'll be able to see them again and supply what is lacking in their faith. And he prayed that the Lord would make them abound more and more in love for each other and for all. And he was really desperate that this would be the case because he knew that those were two important things the most important things in the world for them. He knew they needed to grow in their faith. They needed to keep on trusting God. They needed to do so more and more as they, as they understood the gospel better and better. And as more and more challenges came to their faith, especially in the form of persecution. And he also knew that if their faith was genuine, it would be expressed in love. And so their love for each other would grow more and more. If a child is healthy, it will grow in length and weight. If a church is healthy, it will grow in faith and love. Well, Paul thanks God for this Thessalonian church because in verse 3, their faith is growing abundantly and their love for one another is increasing. They are growing well in faith and love. And so he's thankful. How do you know if a church is healthy? You don't look at the externals. What kind of building they're in, you know, if it's got the latest gadgets. or Don't look at the size of the congregation. Don't look at the level of emotion in the meeting. Don't look to see how happening it is. Don't even look at the length of the sermon. Right? <laughs> Here's what you ask. Are they growing in faith in Christ? Are they growing in love for one another? Well, let's think about ourselves here at Smack and, and St. Mary's as a whole. Are we growing in our faith? I think we are. I think we're very keen to understand the Bible and to put it into action. And one of the great things about Smack, I hear from many people, is how much they've grown in their faith since coming here. And, but we need to keep growing, don't we? We need to keep on studying the Bible and believing what it says. We need to keep on understanding the gospel and keep exploring every implication for our life. We can never, ever, ever, ever sit back and say, we've made it. We're there. We've understood it all. If we're not moving forward, we're slipping backwards. Oh, we need to grow in the faith. 
And growing in the faith is not just growing in knowledge. That's only one part of it. Growing in the faith is learning to trust God firmly based on the things that we learn about him in his word. And that faith grows even as, as it's being stretched and challenged. Uh, the Thessalonians were facing persecution. And so for them, growing in the faith meant trusting God in the midst of terrible persecution. It meant holding fast to Jesus even when there was big losses. For some of us, growing in the faith will happen through suffering. And we learn to trust that the God who gives us promises in the midst of pain or grief or sickness or psychological distress can be trusted. And even in the midst of all those things, to hold fast to Jesus and say, I still trust that God is good. It is well with my soul. I don't understand what he's doing. I don't understand the circumstances around me, but I see his goodness at the cross and I trust him. And I learn to say, your will be done. Right? That's, that's growing in faith, isn't it? That's growing in faith. And we need to keep on growing in faith. And what about growing in love? Are we all growing in our love for each other? Well, that's, that's even harder to measure, isn't it? Right? I think we are, but I, I think that's something we need to keep on asking ourselves. We need to keep on considering. T to grow in love for each other, we need to know each other. Now, in a church this size, we can't know everyone, but we can know some people, especially those in our own growth group. And so in our growth groups, we need to make sure we're not just studying the Bible, as vitally as important as that is, but we're also building meaningful, loving, Christ-centered, encouraging relationships. Relationships of love. And if we're not in a growth group, then either we should join one, or we should ex work extra hard at building those kind of relationships with others in the congregation uh, as we serve God together in other ways. Whatever happens, we cannot, and we must not be a church where people come to church, hear God's word, pray, and go home. Right? We're a community of God's people, and love for one another is a mark of Christian community. I was speaking to someone at church the other day, and she was telling me how she was really supported by God's people here when she was going through a hard time, and how thankful she was to God for our community here. I was speaking to someone else who was feeling disappointed that people in our community whom she thought would support her when she went through a hard time, weren't as supportive as she was hoping. As a community, sometimes we do well, sometimes we don't. So, can I commend you for showing love to each other? And I know you do that because God loved you first, gave his son for you, encouraged you to keep it up. And on behalf of all of us, to apologize for those among us whom we as a community have let down in some way or other. Because we want to love, because God loves us. Sometimes we fail, so please forgive us. We're still learning. We're still learning to love. And no matter how good or otherwise we may think we are in faith and love, we as a community must keep growing in it. Must keep growing. A growing in love is sometimes a lot of fun. It can be great getting to know each other more, uh, loving each other more deeply, being loved more consistently, there's a very positive aspect to it. Sometimes growing in love is painful because it involves realizing that we're not as loving as we thought we were and we need to repent. Or Sometimes it involves sharing hard things with others that the other person might not want to hear, but that's 
part of love and they need to. But we must be growing in love. Let's seek to keep on growing. Paul prayed for growth in faith and love for his dear friends at Thessalonica. And now he had good news. The Lord had answered his prayers. Their love was growing. Their faith was growing. Uh, even when Paul hadn't been back personally to see them. And so Paul thanked God. And notice how he says in verse 3, he ought to do that. He, ought to, he, he should thank God because actually it's only when God is at work that this kind of growth happens. Friends, when we realize that we need to grow in faith and love, that should drive us on our knees before God, shouldn't it? We should pray earnestly that God would grow smack one in faith and love. We should pray earnestly that he will grow us all together at St. Mary's Cathedral in faith and love. We should pray for each other and for ourselves as individuals that we will grow in faith and love. We really, really need to pray because, and this is not just theory, it's true. It's only when God works among us that this happens. He can plan events, we can run courses, we can teach the scriptures, we can join growth groups, all vitally important things. But only God can make us grow. So we've got to pray for it. And whenever we see evidence in our congregation of growth in faith and growth in love, we should thank God. And we see our brothers and sisters as individuals growing in faith and love. We must thank God. And wouldn't it be great if we all prayed consistently for our congregation and for all the congregations here for this? And wouldn't it be great if we're able to look back at God answering our prayers at the end of each year to say, actually, yeah, actually, yeah, we've grown in faith. Yeah, actually, yeah, we've grown in love. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And back to Paul's example, notice how he encourages uh, God's people in this. He doesn't say to himself, oh, well, it's God's work, so why should I bother encouraging them? All right? On the other hand, he doesn't congratulate them for what God did in them. What does he do? He thanks God, and he tells them he thanks God. He tells them he is thankful not to them, but to God. They are encouraged, and God, to whom all glory is due, receives the glory. That's a great model for encouragement, isn't it? What can I thank God for in you? Well, I should thank God, and then I should tell you. Let's see if we can learn to encourage each other in this kind of way. Well, the second thing that Paul does to encourage the Thessalonian church is he boasts about them to others, and then he tells them. And the thing he particularly boasts about is their perseverance and faith in the midst of persecution. And again, he's not praising them directly. He's telling them what he says to others. And look what he says to them in verse 4. Therefore, we boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. See, the Thessalonians, they're not only growing in faith and love, but they are doing so in the midst of persecution. They are persevering, they are enduring, despite all the hardships they face from those who hate the Lord Jesus. And so Paul tells about them to the other churches as well. He brags about them. 
about their steadfastness and faith. Right? It's because he wants them to be an example unto others. In fact, as we read this letter, they're an example to us, aren't they? Uh, because actually, persecution is normal for being a Christian. Now, many of us are not personally suffering persecution. That is abnormal. Right? No, that's okay. We don't go looking for persecution. All right? But at the same time, we should never think it's strange if it happens. Uh, there will be Christians around the world that even this very day will die for their faith. Uh, even in our own nation, there are those who are persecuted. Most famous of those is Pastor Raymond Coe and Pastor Joshua Helmy and, and his wife Ruth. Uh, there are foreigners who are in jail here as we speak for preaching the gospel. Uh, persecution is normal for Christians. And so people like the Thessalonians who persevere in the faith despite persecution are held up by Paul as an example for us. And as we see their example, we're encouraged to, to persevere as well. Um, and as they discover that they are being used as an example, they are also encouraged to persevere. So here's a suggestion. If you're looking for ways to encourage each other, try and think what good thing about the person you're trying to encourage can be an example for other people. In what way are they a good example in serving Christ and his gospel? And then tell other people about their good example, and then you can share with them how, your, how their example is helping other people as well. Well, the third way Paul encourages the Thessalonian church is by reminding them of the second coming. He reminds them of the second coming. Now, he starts by reminding them of God's justice, right? The fact that they're Persevering despite persecution is, in verse 5, evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That is, God is just. He hasn't left them to suffer persecution and then forgotten about them. He's actually keeping them to the end. And so that, in verse 5, as it continues, they will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which they are suffering. Right? That in the, he is keeping them so that at the end, it's going to be worthwhile. You see, sometimes we who don't get persecuted can romanticize persecution. But what a great thing to be able to stand and suffer for the gospel. Yes, great thing indeed. But for people in the middle of it, it doesn't seem so great. Uh, those who stand firm under persecution, they are heroes, and they should be considered as such. But they often don't feel like heroes at the time. They feel like losers. They feel like God is having a go at them. Uh, it's hard to see what God is doing when you're being put under such great strain. It's hard to remember that he's still in control. Hard to keep trusting him. Right? When you're persecuted, things happen to you that you don't deserve. People say lies about you, other people believe them. People treat you like a criminal when you haven't done anything wrong. People do things to you that you think, what, what have I done to deserve that? Right? You can even give your life to try and bring the gospel to an unreached tribe and people, and some of your fellow believers will even criticize you for doing that. Justice will go out the window. It's not fair. Persecution is not fair. And the God of justice seems to have forgotten to do justice for you while you're suffering there for him. Paul knew what persecution is like. He's been on both sides of it, right? He's persecuted Christians, and when he became a Christian, he was not going to persecute it, right? Over and over again. And the lesson that he's learned is what he's sharing with the Thessalonians, that in spite of all appearances, God is just. God is just. And he will bring about justice for his people. 
Let me tell you a little story about justice. Right? Um, imagine your extended family owned a company uh, and various members of your family were employed in that company. And imagine you came across a certain hypothetical businessman by the name of, pick a random name, say, Timothy. Right? And let's say he sold $5 million of Philips bonds uh, to your family's company. And your company even had to borrow some money to buy it, but the rates that this Timothy was offering were so compelling, they, they thought it was worth it. And when the bond matured and you went to redeem it, you found that Phillips and the Ehrenberg was actually a $2 company, it's got no assets, and your bond is worthless. And your family is financially ruined. Now, this Timothy person, on the other hand, has taken the money, he's living it up, right? He's throwing lavish parties and he's buying little boats because he can't buy big yachts for $5 million. Right? Um, is justice done? No, it's not. You've been, you've been cheated, you've been lied to, you've been robbed, you've been, you're angry, and, and rightly so. Now, suppose this Timothy has skipped the country, maybe to Thailand or China, and there's no way you can get to him, right? Is justice done? No, it's not. Now, suppose Timothy went to America for a holiday, enjoying all the, is justice done? No, it's not. Ah, but suppose the U.S. Department of Justice finds out about it and he's extradited and sent back to Malaysia, where he's arrested and tried and jailed, and you sue him, and since this is a fairy tale with any similarities to persons living or dead purely coincidental, uh, <laughs> you get your money back with interest. Is justice done then? Yes, it is. Friends, if I stop the story... And anywhere before the end, it would seem that it's a story about injustice rather than a story about justice. But because we heard the story all the way to the end, what I told you at the beginning is right. It's a story about justice. If we look at our world and we look at our lives from any vantage point in history except the end, we will also conclude it is unjust. Understandably. But God says we're jumping to conclusions. He is just, and when the whole story is told, justice will be done. And in the end, we see in verse 6 that God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us. God will bring justice for his people. But not yet. Because the story isn't over. When will that justice happen? Verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Ah. It's when the Lord Jesus comes again. That is when he judges the world with perfect justice. And on that day, everyone will see that God is just. And no one will be able to complain on that day that justice has not been done. Everyone will see the whole story and will know that all wrongs have been put to right. All accounts have been balanced. All debts paid. And no one will be able to say they've been treated unfairly. Justice will be done. And how will people fare in that judgment? What happened to these Thessalonian Christians? And what will happen to their persecutors? Well, Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians three things that will happen to them. First of all, they will be avenged. Look at verse 6 again. God considers it just to repay 
with affliction those who afflict you. Right? God will punish their persecutors and he will give, it back, give back what they gave fair and square. That is why Christians are not to take revenge because there's no need. In fact, if we do take revenge, then we are saying that we don't trust God to do that for us. We're setting ourselves up as judge. But we cannot judge justly. We don't know all the facts. We don't know all the circumstances. We don't know what's in people's hearts, what they would have done in circumstances were different. It's, it's not our job to take revenge. We leave that to God. And he will see that those who persecute his people will get what they deserve. The second thing that will happen is that persecuted believers will be relieved. Verse 7 says that God will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us. You know, whenever we suffer, whatever the suffering is, what we long for is relief, isn't it? Those who are being persecuted, it's long for it to end. Everything's just so stressful, you want it to be over. It's like exam time or end of financial year or or just before that great company event or that court case or whatever it is. But instead of that happening and it just keeps on going on and on and on and on and on and on and you need a break. And when Jesus comes, Paul says, you get relief. The way things are won't last forever. The stress time will be over and your Christmas leave will come when Jesus returns and he will wipe every tear from the eye and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and no more persecution. The Thessalonians can look forward to that, and so can we. The third thing that will happen when Jesus returns is they will glorify and marvel at the Lord Jesus. Verse 10 uh, talks about the day when he comes to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. Right? Uh, Glorified. In his saints, actually probably better translated among his saints. It's the same word in, in both uh, uh, among his saints and among those who have believed. Uh, and what it's saying here is actually Jesus deserves all the glory. Right? He's the one who died for us. Um, and, 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 and even now we marvel at his love. He's, he's the risen Lord who is above everything, high above the whole universe. And, and we marvel at his magnificence. But, but, but on the day that he returns, ah, we'll be able to do it in a far deeper way. We'll understand even more how great and how good he is and we will honor him as we should. Uh, Jesus who died for us will be glorified and marveled at among his people. And so the Holy Spirit, through Paul, encourages believers to to press on by, by just reminding us about what happens at the end. But what about those who are persecuting these Thessalonians? What can they expect? And what can people who persecute believers now expect? You can think about Pakistan. There are people who are trying to kill Asia Bibi and her family. Do you think they're going to get away with it? Well, verse 9 spells out God's judgment. It says in verse 9, they will be suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Right? Now, if you look... The, in, in verse 9, in the original Greek, the words away from isn't actually there, but there's a construction there that could mean that, but it may not. Right? So uh, if away from is correct, uh, then it means it's, th- that's right, because there's a sense in which being away from God is away from everything that's good, and it's being shut out from the glory of God that, that believers enjoy. 
It's being kept from, from all community, all love, all fellowship, fulfillment, all hope, and, and, and that's what hell is like. Lah. But I think the alternative translates a better one, and you can see it in the footnotes, right? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, and I look at footnote four, uh, footnote two, and it says, that comes from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Right? And so on this reading, that the punishment or the destruction actually comes from the face of the Lord Jesus himself. That is, the glory of Jesus, which elicits wonder and worship from his people, brings destruction on their persecutors. Because hell's not just a, a passive thing where God is absent. It's God is present, but his face is turned against his enemies. Friends, Jesus is good, but he is not tame. And we don't want to be on the wrong side of him. And we don't want to be on the wrong side of him forever. I cannot even begin to imagine uh, what, it would, what it would be like to be under, under God's eternal punishment, but I, but I can't think of anything worse. To have God, the only source of life, the only source of hope, the only source of anything good forever against you and you against him is a fate that is just too terrible to comprehend. And that is what awaits those who are persecuting God's people. Well, the fourth way uh, Paul encourages the Thessalonians is by telling them what he's praying for them. All right? And there are two things that Paul's praying for them here. The first one is in verse 11. It says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you, or actually a better translation is to consider you, because it's the same, uh, same root word as in verse 5, the consider worthy of the kingdom of God, that God may consider you worthy of his calling. Right? Remember in verse 5, Paul's already told the Thessalonians that their endurance under persecution is evidence that God, God will count them or consider them worthy of his kingdom. That is, God will keep them persevered to the end so they'll be there. Uh, and now he tells them that he actually prays that God would do this. Right? He prays that God would keep them trusting in Jesus until he returns uh, and brings them justice and is glorified among his people. Right? Because, because in the end, that is God's work. And that's also a good thing to pray for each other, isn't it? Uh, that's actually the thing that we need the most if we're believers. Far more important than cars or jobs or, or you know, whatever it is, we, we need to persevere. And we need God's help to do that. So pray for each other for perseverance. And the second thing to pray for in verse 11 is that God would fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Right? That is, God and only God can actually accomplish the things that the Thessalonians want to do for him. Right? And so all the things they want, all the good things that they want to do, all the things they're trying to accomplish, actually, God has to fulfill it. Right? God has to make it work. Uh, and so likewise, we pray for each other that God would fulfill all the good things that we want to do for him. Right? That he will take our good intentions and our hard work and actually make them fruitful for the kingdom. Right? And we need him to do that. Right? There's no point working, 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 working for God unless God is working in you and through you. Unless the Lord builds the house, 
the laborers labor in vain. So we need to pray for every resolve for good and every work of faith that God would fulfill them, God would accomplish them by His power. You've been praying for the guest event? You've been praying for the Christmas things? Have you been praying for your own personal evangelism? You've been praying for whatever it is you're doing to serve the Lord? We can so easily get into activist mode, can't we? Right, do, 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 do. And then, well, if, if we're in that mode, then take this a wake-up call. Actually, you've got to pray. Pray that God will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith among us by His power. We need God to work. And Paul prays this so that, verse 12, the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see the name of Jesus glorified, don't we? Our prayer is that God would work through us that the name of the Lord Jesus might be glorified. That is our goal. That is our goal. And we've got to pray for that. And yet, even that is not the end of the story because when Jesus returns we will share in his glory. Rather than getting the punishment that we deserve, we will instead be glorified with him. And so the end of verse 12 reminds us that all these things come from God's grace. You see, actually the Thessalonians, like their persecutors, were sinners. Actually, they also deserve God's punishment. But unlike their persecutors, they wouldn't be treated with justice they would be given mercy. They would be counted worthy of the calling and they'll be glorified with Jesus. And that's entirely grace. That is undeserved kindness of our God and Savior. Well, we've seen what happened to the Thessalonians, what will happen to the persecutors when Jesus returns. But what about us? Because we're not the Thessalonians and we're not going around persecuting Christians either. What about us? Well, if you look carefully at a verse that I skipped just now, the judgment doesn't just come to the persecutors, does it? It comes, look at verse 8. It comes on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Right? It's not two different groups of people. It's the same group of people are because Jesus is the way to know God. Right? If we do not obey the gospel, the message that Jesus is Lord, that he died for our sins and he rose again, that means we do not submit to Jesus. Uh, we do not know God. Remember how we talked about justice before? If, if God gives justice to us, then that actually means our eternal destruction. Not just the persecutors, because actually all of us haven't treated God properly. All of us actually have rebelled against God. All of us have insulted him. All of us have made ourselves his enemies and actually are in great danger. Right? We're not unique because every single one of us used to be God's enemies. Right? Even the Thessalonian Christians were like that before. Even Paul was like that before. Yet they changed. How? Well, the end of verse 10 shows us that now believers because our testimony to you was believed. That is, they changed from being God's enemies to being God's friends when they believed Paul's testimony, his, his word as an apostle. Right? Paul had seen the risen Jesus who had sent him to proclaim the gospel 
Jesus appointed him as a messenger to tell the world that he had died for them, that he was risen again, that he is the king, and to believe, God, to, to, to believe Paul's testimony is to obey the gospel. And when the Thessalonians believed this message, they were taken out of that group that is heading for destruction and included in the group that was headed for glory. It was a very powerful message that does that, doesn't it? Because it represents a very powerful reality that Jesus Christ, God made man, died on the cross to face the full measure of God's justice. That he died on our behalf to take our sins as our substitute, to take that punishment that justice demanded so we don't have to face it ourselves when the time comes. He died for us, taking our hell instead of us. We said just now at the end that justice will be done, that every sin will be paid for and every wrong avenged, but but for those who are in Christ, all justice has already been done because every sin has been paid for by the precious blood of Jesus. Every wrong has been punished at the cross. No wonder when Jesus returns who will be glorified and marveled at among his people. The Thessalonians believed Paul's testimony about Jesus and so they were heading for glory. They knew God and obeyed the gospel. Do you know God? And do you obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus? Jesus came so that you could be escaping from that judgment to come. Submit to him, obey his gospel. Never think you're too bad for that because, you know, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He was heading right down that path that was going to eternal destruction, and God saved him, forgave him, and he can do that for you. You'll be given forgiveness and mercy, and you'll be among those who are glorified when Jesus returns. And if you are a believer, I hope you're encouraged, as the Thessalonians would have been, by this passage. Keep on pressing on to the end. Remember, even whatever suffering, whatever difficulties you're going through now, remember it will come to an end. Remember the glory that will come when the Lord returns. And keep growing in faith and love as you wait for Him. Persevere in the midst of persecution or whatever it you might be facing and don't take revenge. And remember it is God who will keep you it is God who will fulfill the good purposes he has for you by his power, and so pray that he will do that. And as a church, let's not forget to encourage each other in these things as well. That's one way to grow in faith and love, isn't it? And Paul's given us a good model. Let's remember to give thanks to God for each other and to tell each other that we're doing it. Make the effort to do that. And we need to Keep reminding each other of the end because it's so easy to forget. And we need to keep regularly praying for each other that God would count us all as worthy of his calling, that he would keep us in Christ to the very end, that he would fulfill every good intention and work in us so that the name of Jesus may be glorified in us and us in him on the day he comes to be glorified among his people. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you um, for your people that we can be part of here. We thank you for the growth in faith and love that we have seen among us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we will grow more because we know that we're not there, that we need to grow in faith, we need to grow in love. Please help us do that, Lord. Father, please keep us steadfast and faithful in whatever persecutions or afflictions or difficulties or stresses or, or whatever things that we face. And may we not only be steadfast and faithful, but may we also be an encouragement to others as well, uh, to, to, to do that as well. And help us to be people, Lord, who are, keep looking forward to the end. Help us to be people who trust in your promises, who know that um, the day will come when justice is done, uh, and to trust you uh, to bring that about. Uh, help us to be people who, who continue, even now, uh, marvel at the grace that you've shown us in Christ uh, and look forward to the day where we will marvel even more at the glory of our Lord Jesus. We pray that you keep us trusting in him to the very end and that you will fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith uh, by your power. We know, Lord, there's so many things that we want to do to serve you and to please you and to see your gospel go out, but we know that actually you're the one who has got to be at work, uh, that if we just do these things by ourselves, it's, it's no use. And so please, Father, uh, would you fulfill all these things? And Father, may the name of the Lord Jesus be glorified among us. Uh, and may we, um, as we are faithful to him, uh, and the day when he comes, uh, may we be glorified in him uh, according to the grace that you've given to us. Father, help us, we pray. We are your people. Uh, change us and make us like your son. We ask this in his name. Amen.